In October 1967, 26-year-old Mary Sevier set off from Sussex in England to ride to India on a motorcycle. The bike she had chosen for her trip was a 1966 BSA Bantam with a single-cylinder 175cc two-stroke engine. She reached India and kept going all the way around the world. The journey would take her nine years, making her the first British woman to circumnavigate the world alone on a motorcycle. My name is Martin Moore, and I'm a journalist and filmmaker. In November 2021, I sat down with Mary and asked her to tell her story. Episode 8, Completing the Circle. He said, all you've got to do is get to the West Coast and ride in a straight line to the East Coast and ship the bike back. He said, no problems. He said, they've got decent roads. They speak English after a fashion. What do you want, for God's sakes? It won't take you that long. You just ride in a straight line. Maybe stop off to see a few things on the way. So in the end, I said, yes, OK. So I found somebody to do my job. And the bike got shipped over. I flew. Unfortunately, all the papers for the motorbike for the, from the car from the freight company went to the wrong address, and they were returned to Hong Kong. And I had to get hold of my future husband and say, "Can you please use great influence to get more papers sent to me because I can't move?" So eventually, we got the bike out, and it had been crated, so they had taken the front wheel off and the luggage rack. And I had to get it all put back on again. And it was a hell of a palaver. It really was. Anyway, off I went. And at some stage, I deviated and went to the Grand Canyon. And I arrived on my motorbike. And I took, left the motorbike. And then I went into the office. to. I wanted to take a flight over the Grand Canyon. I had my crash helmet with me. And I walked in. <laughs> and the man behind the desk said, our pilots do know what they do. You don't actually have to wear a crash helmet to fly one of our planes. And he'd seen me arrive on the motorbike, so he was just being funny. Anyway, everybody went in quite a large plane. I don't know how, how many people it would have been, maybe something like a 12-seater a or so. But there were three of us left behind. So I said, so what happens? We come back to, no, 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 we've got another plane for you. Well, it didn't look like anything out there except this tiny little thing <laughs> looked like a toy plane and the pilot came along and I sat in the front seat next door to him and I think they were a German couple sat behind I don't think they saw anything of the trip at all they had their heads down they were hanging on to each other they were absolutely petrified and I was sitting white knuckled and I thought Poor pilot, he's got two at the back and he must see that they're absolutely petrified and they're sit sitting there praying to God it's going to be over soon. I said, I can't sit here being petrified and my eyes tight closed. So I thought, no, I must be brave, I must be brave. I have to say, it, it was very fantastic. It was a beautiful day. It really was a, a wonderful experience. Um, and then I continued on and the Americans were, were very nice. I got quite a lot of hospitality. Um, I ended up in Atlanta because I was working at the time for an American real estate company that were trying to uh, get the funds 
mostly Chinese funds, to build a, a beach resort on one of the islands in Hong Kong. They never succeeded. How they ran a company, God alone knows. And I met people who knew the company um, when I was in America. And they said, oh, that's a big real estate company. I said, you've got to be joking. They couldn't organize a piss up at a brewery. The amount of money they wasted was out of this world. It was quite, quite extraordinary. Anyway, I stayed with the mistress of the president of the company, who was known as, I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to say this, who was known as Big Boobs. <laughs> and when she came with him, they stayed in the Hilton Hotel in Hong Kong. But when he came with his wife, who was a very grand southern lady, boy, oh boy, and she had a lot of money. They stayed in the Peninsula Hotel. And it was very, very amusing. I had met her once, I think. But when I got to Atlanta, I stayed with big boobs. But I was invited, much to my surprise, by the president, El Presidento, to go and have coffee one morning with his wife in the family home. It was like gone with the wind. Drive in, drive out, big pillars. I don't think actually there were black servants, I can't remember, but there were certainly servants. And his wife was very, very gracious. And she never asked me where I was staying because she must have known where I was staying because I thought, what am I going to say? I'll have to say I'm staying with a friend of mine. But she must have known. I mean, Big Boobs drove around Atlanta in a Mercedes Coupe with blonde hair flowing. Well, there weren't that many young, attractive women who had Mercedes Coupes. <laughs> so it was interesting. And then eventually I ended up uh, in Savannah and uh, the bike was crated and it was shipped back to Felixstowe. And then I went to collect it and brought it back to England. And I don't know what the mileage is that the bike did because as I have said earlier, I had more speedometers than flat tires. I worked it out roughly, it's under 50,000 miles. Um, two flat tires, because I've got a flat tire in Thailand. Fortunately, a nail right outside a motorcycle shop. Couldn't have been better. So, of course, it got fixed immediately. Thank God for that. And as far as I'm concerned, it was a brilliant experience. Not what I expected, because I wasn't going to go around the world. I wasn't even really going to India. Well, I was going to Russia. <laughs> and I never got to Russia. Well, not on the motorbike anyway. Um, and the bike, as far as I was concerned, the bike probably was, for me, the best sort of bike. Because, as the motorcycle mechanics in, in the police station said, it was light enough for me to pick up on my own if it fell over. It was light enough for two people to put into a vehicle if, it, if needs be. It was the basic Meccano set. So many people I have come across recently, their first bike was a BSA Bantam because it was just so easy to, to look after. Uh, so uh, it, it, it was a brilliant machine and it did very, very well. And uh, somebody who uh, is the curator of a museum in England, I won't mention which one, when I spoke to him on the phone, 
and asked whether he would be interested in having my bike on display because I don't honestly think that I'm going to be riding it. Um, he said, you went round the world on a BSA Bantam. He said, I can't believe it. So I said, as far as I'm concerned, there isn't any other bike to do it on. Well, nowadays, yeah, it's a whole different ballgame now, totally different. And I don't know, it's difficult to know. I said, adventure is in the mind. If you think you're doing an adventure, you're doing an adventure. But when people are going with uh, sat-navs and drones and cameras all over them, taking pictures, I feel they are losing, well, first of all, they're losing any spontaneity. They can't be stopping to meet as many people as I would have done because they don't have to ask directions. Um, I think it's, in a way, a bit sad, but they don't know any difference, so it's, it's fine by them. But, um, no, um, no, I don't regret, as Edith Piaf sang, she regret Korea. Do you think, how, in the 10 years, you would have changed anyway, from the 25, 26-year-old no, girl? With nine years. Okay. On, on the bike, yeah. yeah. Forgive me. Yeah. No, no. So, but, but in those nine years, you would have changed anyway because of your yeah. experiences of yeah. life. How do you think the journey influenced the change from the girl that set off from England to the girl that came back and collected the bike in Felixstowe? How, how did the journey change you? Well, I suppose anybody who did something like that would say it built up their self-confidence. Um, I probably had more self-confidence than the average person because of having lived, uh, well, I went off and lived in Jersey for three years. Uh, I went to Israel for nine months, not really knowing where I was going other than I was going to find out what life was like on a kibbutz. Um, so, yeah, it, obviously it built up more self-confidence. Um, I'm certainly not scared of saying boo to a goose. Um, I get the impression that you wouldn't have been anyway, though, Mary. I think you had a sense of adventure in you before the journey because of all the other experiences yes, yes. that you've done. So, do you think it was because of that type of person that you were that you made the journey anyway? Do you think if you had been an introverted, shy young woman, you would have ever had an experience the like of which you did? I think the answer to that is most, most definitely. Um, no, I would not. I certainly, when I, when I was younger, we were brought up because my father died when I was 11 and a half. We were brought up by a mother who had no money. Um, and she was quite a disciplinarian and we were never allowed to argue back. You sit there and I'm going to talk to you and you do not answer back. And it wasn't until I was working in an office in Jersey, uh, in a lawyer's office, and there was a young girl who came to work there, and 
her hours were nine to five. But one of the partners um, used to keep her there until six. So the next morning, because he hadn't signed his letters and she had to take them to the post office. So the next morning, instead of coming in at nine, because she'd been kept an hour later, the night before, she came in at 10. And my boss, who was supposed to be in charge of staff, wasn't very happy about this. And I thought, oh, I think she's right. I don't know that I would do it because I wouldn't. But I think she's right. No, no, she, no. I'm, all, I'm, 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 I'm on her side. So I explained that to my boss. Oh, <laughs> probably because I was a good secretary, I wasn't fired. <laughs> And she taught me that if you didn't stand up for yourself, nobody else was going to, and you'd be, you'd just be trodden all over. So I learned from her. I called her Fluff. She came from the East End of London. She's a right little cockney. Oh, she wore really short skirts. I don't know whether it was in the days of hot pants or not. Um, but she, she was very nice, and I thought, no, she has got the right idea. She's not going to be trampled over. So I learnt a lot from her. Um, so to a certain extent, um, I was actually quite shy. Um, yes, yeah, no, I think I probably was quite shy, but there wasn't any reason for me, um, I didn't know, to... To, to fight my corner for any reason. And then, of course, well, the first thing I did was, I mean, at 15 and a half, I went over to Paris for an interview at a fashion designing college because I was going to be the world's leading fashion designer. Um, and I had to go over the college. Uh, the college um, said, if you come for an interview and bring your designs with you, we'll consider. That was because my mother had written to Christian Dior and said, can't find a college in England, but we understand there's one in Paris. Uh, my daughter wants to be uh, a fashion designer. Thought I'd contact you and ask, what would you suggest? So his secretary wrote back to my mother and said she'd been in touch with this college and that um, my mother would be hearing from her. So my mother heard from the college and they said, if your daughter would like to come over for an interview, we will consider taking her. So off I went by myself to, to Paris. And there was this woman sitting behind the desk uh, with a sort of pince-nez. And she looked at all my designs and she said, Mademoiselle, are these your designs? I said, of course they are. And she said, no, no, of course about it at all. She said, designers take a little bit of design from this person and a little bit of design from that person, a little bit of design from that person, and then they make it into their own design. I said, certainly not. I said, those are my designs. Well, in that case, you're actually very talented. So I said, well, thank you very much. And we will take you. So I went when I was 16. And I lived in Versailles with some friends. Uh, and I went in every day on the train to, to Paris. And I used to wander around Paris and go to the college. Um, but it turned out that... Um, it was three days of needlework, and it was in a room with strip lighting, and it was in the winter. The strip lighting was on the whole time, and I had very bad eyesight, and my eyes used to hurt like hell, so I used to end up getting headaches. 
And in the end, I went to the principal and I said, look, I'm supposed to be doing fashion designing, but there's not a lot of designing. It's three days of needlework. And she said, uh, yes, mademoiselle, but you have to learn about needlework. If you gather the material here, this is what it does. And if you put a dart here, this is what it does. So I said, well, that's plain common sense. And she looked at me over her pince-nez and she said, Mademoiselle, common sense is not common. And I have a t-shirt that says that as well. So I left and I then got a job as a governess because I was supposed to be learning French. Because apart from being a fashion designer, um, I was, wanted to be a probation officer. I was going to change all these youngsters who went wrong. <laughs> Too good in me. But actually before that, what had happened was when I was at the college, <laughs> as an aside, Christian Dior died and nobody came and asked me to take his place. I was very, very upset about that. <laughs> I used to dine out on that story. Oh dear, no. Uh, and I never, did, I never designed anything after that. But when I was at school, I used to spend my entire time drawing clothes and they would take pencils and paper away from me and they almost tied my hands together because I just would not concentrate on, on school. I, I wasn't interested in school. Not at all. I was not academic. Um, and then I, got, I did learn French and... That was, that was actually to help with the fashion designing, but then of course I'd given that up. But I thought, well now I'll continue to, learn, to, to continue learning to speak French. And then I came back, and in order to, to be a probation officer, first of all, if you didn't have a university degree, you could, I think you had to wait until you were about 21, and then you could, you could do some special course. And I thought, I'm not waiting till I'm 21, that's absolutely absurd. Um, and then I decided to do fashion buying. So I went and worked in D.H. Evans in uh, Oxford Street and I lived in a hostel uh, where I learnt to mix with other girls and share a bedroom, which I'd never done in my life before, uh, until I could get myself a single room. And then all the staff worked on commission. And one day I came back from my lunch break and two women, two shop assistants were pulling each other's hair out and over commission. One of them had stolen the other person's customer. And I thought, oh no, and I thought, never gonna work with Moon again. No, absolutely terrible, can't cope with this. And then a friend of mine who worked at DH Evans said she was going off to Jersey for a working holiday. Would I like to join her? So um, I said, yes, fine. Um, and somewhere along the line, I, had, I got my first secretarial job, that was it, uh, in Chichester. And I can remember the, the, solicitor, well, the senior, senior lawyer who interviewed me said, um, oh, I, uh, I know your mother. And I thought, why is it? Everybody knows my mother. Everybody knows my father. Everybody heard of my grandfather if they're interested in horse racing. Oh, this is terrible. Why can't somebody just accept me? Um, and I think that was something that spurred me on as well, that... I mean, obviously, in retrospect, it's easy to say I did something that, that nobody else could have done for me. But when I went to get the, the job as a court shorthand writer, uh, it was rather like, when did you last see your father? There was the chief magistrate, 
the deputy magistrate and the chief clerk from the court and I sat on a chair and the chief magistrate said, oh, uh, good morning, Miss Sevier. Um, I believe I've met your mother. And I thought, God, not another one. And I said, my mother can't do shorthand. She's not applying for the job. <laughs> I thought, well, that's it. I've had it. <laughs> and then I was offered the job, but not because of my mother. <laughs> So I think I'd had, a, I'd had quite a lot of life's experiences before I went. I was 20, anyway, it was 1967, so I was 26. I was just 26 when I left. But having left school at just under 16, obviously I had had a lot of experience of being out in the world. So where does riding, the, riding around the world on a BSA Bantam fit in all of those life's, life's experiences because one of my questions that I sent in advance was at what point in a new friendship do you drop into the conversation that you've ridden around the world on a little 175cc motorcycle and you tend not to tell people I do so tell me about that so tell me there's a lot of people here in Gosport who don't know that I went around the world on a motorbike uh, my attitude, when, when people say, well, why haven't you written a book? My attitude used to be, before I was found on Facebook, my attitude used to be, I know what I've done, and I don't care if nobody else knows. It doesn't make any difference. What the hell? Um, now I'm being encouraged to write a book, A, because I suppose the feminists would like me to do it, being a female, having done something that long ago, and with people proclaiming that I am possibly the first British woman to go around the world alone on a motorbike. But I have said that is not to be a description applied to me. I was found six to seven months ago on Facebook. I did this 50 years ago. There could be other women who've done the same thing before me even. I mean, certainly there are women who've ridden BSA Bantams, uh, or BSA bikes anyway, but I think Bantams, from England to India or India to, to, to England, because I've come across them. They haven't necessarily gone around the world. And there was a woman I met in Australia who'd gone to my high school in Chichester, uh, and she'd ridden a BSA Bantam out to India. And I've tried to find her, but I can't. I've got an address in Australia. She was quite a lot older than me. And I've got newspaper cuttings of when she and I were interviewed together and I stayed with her because she, she got hold of the newspaper and said, can you please find Mary for me? Because I'd like her to come and stay with me when she passes through. And it was, it was in West, Western Australia. Um, but it... I, <laughs> I don't know, it's difficult to say. I just find it overwhelming that people think that I did something unusual. And at the back of my mind, yes, I suppose I, I suppose I can admit that it was something unusual, but I can't believe it. I mean, to me, it was, I, I, I just went. I wasn't going around the world. I just went. I had a motorbike. I was stuck with this piece of metal slung between two wheels and I couldn't go to Russia. 
and that that's how it, that's how it started it yeah i i don't know it and and then as i went along um it just sort of unraveled and i got all these marvelous jobs interesting jobs and as i went along i found out that the world wasn't nearly as bad as everybody painted and when i came back to england um because the journalist for the Chichester Observer had been following me all those years. She must have put it out on the wire that I had returned. So I had quite a few national newspapers ring me and say they wanted to know how many times I'd had my wallet stake stolen, how many times I'd lost my passport, and I thought, yes, and let's have the next one. How many times had I been assaulted? And I said, stop. I said, nothing that untoward happened to me. I was able to ward off a few problems, but I said nothing really untoward happened to me. Isn't it newsworthy that a young white English woman can go round the world on a motorcycle on her own without very many problems? And the answer was no, it wasn't newsworthy. And so I didn't get any publicity when I came back which didn't worry me, and I just thought, that's really sad. And this is why I think I am so bewildered that people are now interested. I mean, the, the Overland event in September, I, I was just totally overwhelmed. I mean, and I don't know that I have even got over it. I met so many nice people, so many people who kept on thinking that I had done something wonderful, and, and, and I, I don't know, I, I, it's beyond me, quite beyond me. <laughs> the Merry Motorcycle Podcast is the unedited audio track from a film about Mary Sevier made by Martin Moore and produced by Saul Jevons. Search Mary Motorcycle on Vimeo to watch the film and see almost a hundred of Mary's original photographs.